Amen. Go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 6. We are continuing our series this morning called Conquering Codependency. And I'd like to begin our time this morning by uh, telling you a brief story about a woman named Tanya Head. Tanya Head was a woman who uh, told an amazing survival story. She was uh, on Tower Number 2 on September the 11th, and um, she basically was one of the few people who was able to escape from one of the upper floors of the Twin Towers. She was on the 78th floor on 9-11. And uh, when that jetliner crashed into that building, she, uh, she immediately was dazed, confused, the whole floor like erupted in flames, she said. The blast itself severed her arm, and it was like dangling by a thread. Uh, and she somehow was able to navigate through the smoke and the flames to make it to the stairwell and to descend the 78 floors and to make it out alive. And Tanya Head was one of only 19 survivors who were able to get out of Tower Number 2 on September 11th. And in the days following September 11th, Tanya Head began to tell this amazing story of survival. And uh, she talked about the great heartache she experienced, you know, by losing her coworkers. And she talked about how she lost her fiancé, David, in Tower Number 1. And uh, she told this heart-wrenching story of what she had been through in 9-11. And so she began to be featured in news articles. Um, you know, she was on the news in the newspaper and magazines. She was honored at memorial events for 9-11. She, she actually met um, Mayor Bloomberg and Mayor Giuliani. And uh, she, she did all kinds of events with these men. And she became a celebrity for 9-11. I mean, she actually gave tours of Ground Zero in New York City. And not desiring to stop there even, Tanya Head went above and beyond, and she actually founded the World Trade Center Survivors Network, where her and other survivors could get together to tell their, their stories about what they went through and to be like emotional buoys for each other and help each other and support each other. She became basically the poster child for the 9-11 attacks in New York City. But in 2007, a reporter with the New York Times was doing um, like a six-year anniversary of 9-11. And this New York Times reporter decided to choose Tanya Head as the person that he would write about and profile. And so he began to dig into Tanya's past a little bit to know better about this miraculous survivor, you know, this heroic woman. And when he began to dig a little bit, he began to find many inconsistencies in her story. For example... Tanya had said that she graduated from Harvard and Stanford with business degrees. But when this reporter called those schools, they never even heard of her. Tanya had claimed she had been working at Merrill Lynch in the World Trade Center during the attacks. But when this reporter called Merrill Lynch, they never had any record of her employment there ever. The reporter tried three different times to schedule an interview with Tanya to kind of get behind these inconsistencies and figure out what the problem was, every single time, Tanya Head backed out of the interview at the last minute. Soon after that, Tanya Head stopped doing interviews altogether with reporters and anyone asking questions about 9-11. The woman who had become the poster child for the 9-11 attack suddenly was like inaccessible. No one could even get a hold of her to interview her. Well, this New York Times reporter, you know, like reporters do, he would not be deterred. And so he dug deeper and deeper and deeper until 
he exposed Tanya Head's life as an elaborate hoax. I mean, the whole thing had been a lie. In fact, Tanya Head was not her name at all. It was actually Alicia Head. And she was not even in the States during the 9-11 attack. She was actually in Barcelona, Spain in school, attending classes there. She never even worked in the World Trade Center. And David, her, her supposed fiancé who perished in Tower Number 1, David's family didn't even know who Tanya Head or Alicia Head even was. They never even heard of her before. And, and the apparent injury to her arm that had a huge scar did not come from the 9-11 attacks. It actually happened because of an automobile accident when she was like 18 years old. Tanya Head had made the entire thing up. She invented this elaborate hoax and she was exposed on September 27th of 2007. And uh, immediately she was removed as the president of the World Trade Center uh, Survivors Network. And she fled into hiding. She became a recluse. And she remains a recluse to this very day. Can't even find her. People don't know where she even is. Now this story is incredible, isn't it? Hopefully it was. It was to me at least. This story is incredible because we're left with this question. What in the world would drive a person to do that? You know, what would drive a person to make up this elaborate story about being a 9-11 survivor? Well, here's the good news. If you're curious to know more information, there's a documentary on Netflix, okay? It's called The Woman Who Wasn't There. The Woman Who Wasn't There. And it recounts in detail the elaborate hoax of Tanya Head. And at the end of the movie, you know, they, they, they talk to all these psychologists and psychiatrists and childhood friends of, of Alicia Head, and they, they get to the bottom of what drove this woman to do what she did. And it's very interesting, because the unanimous consensus is this. The reason Tanya Head did what she did was because she wanted to be accepted. She wanted to be accepted by other people. She wanted to feel like she mattered. She wanted to be someone and Tanya Head, Alicia Head, whatever her name is, she felt like her life was so insignificant and so unworthy of attention that she actually reinvented herself, she actually reinvented reality to make herself matter, someone important. And so Tanya Head was a woman who desperately longed for acceptance and significance. That is what she was after. And here's the truth, here's the reality this morning. That desire for significance and acceptance is not a bad thing inherently. It's not bad at all. In fact, the reason we all have a desire for acceptance and significance and to feel like we matter is because you were actually created to matter. Did you know that? You were actually created for dignity and honor. As the Bible says in Psalm 8, God created man and he crowned him with glory and honor. The word glory in Hebrew, it's a nugget and a half, okay? It's the word kavod. Let's say that together. Kavod. Kavod. A little bit chopped up there. It's cool, though. Kavod. Kavod means weighty or heavy. We were made to matter. We were made to be weighty, to carry weight, as we say today in society. Because when we were created, God looked over all of his creation, including humans, and he said, this is all very good. This, this all pleases me. This all is awesome. We were created very good. We were created perfect and glorious. We had dignity. We had glory. But you all know the story, right? God created Adam and Eve. They're perfect. They're weighty. They're glorious. 
puts them in a perfect place called paradise, which is basically like Whole Foods, okay, because everything was fresh fruits. There's no gluten in anything, and they frolicked around naked all day. That's what they did, and they hung out. And you know the story. God said, there's one tree over there. Don't eat from that tree. And you know what happens. The law always provokes its opposite. So what we did is went over and took that tree, ate of it. And ever since then, all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, that's us, lost our glory. It's like they took a bite and that little halo, it, and then the, the holy glow just disappeared. They lost their original glory and weight. And you know what? Ever since that time, Mankind has been desperately striving to once again regain that glory. You know, we, we spend our entire lives craving that declaration that says, very good, acceptable, you matter, you're awesome. We spend our lives striving after that declaration because you were made to bear that declaration. You were created that way. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And so we crave that declaration. We need that declaration. We desperately need someone to tell us we're okay. I mean, can someone please help me and tell me that I'm okay? Thank you. <laughs> One person loves me in here, right? <laughs> Listen, seriously, though, we, we live our lives. Can someone please just tell me that I belong and that I'm in the in crowd? Can someone just tell me that? We spend our lives chasing that verdict, that declaration that we had in the garden that we lost. And here's the rub. You can't give yourself that declaration. You can't look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that you matter. It doesn't work, you know? It's like the Saturday Night Live skit with, with Stuart Smalley. Can we go to the next slide here? Remember Stuart Smalley? He said he would look himself in the mirror and he would say, remember this? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. No one watched, you know, the 80s Saturday Night Live episodes, huh? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You can't do that. It doesn't work. You can, you can look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself you're all that and a bag of chips, okay? But it doesn't work. You need to hear a voice from outside of yourself that says very good. You can't tell yourself that, and you know that intuitively. The declaration that we are worthy and that we belong must come from outside of ourselves. It must be a different voice than our own. And ultimately, the person that must bestow that verdict upon us, it must be God himself. It's got to be God himself or it doesn't work. Because we were made to hear the very good verdict of God over our lives. We were created that way. Okay? So we were significant. We fell. We became insignificant. We lost our glory. And so sin has robbed us of that positive verdict. We spend our lives going after it. And here's the problem. The primary place that we look to secure the very good verdict is other fallen sinners. That's where we look. That's our default mode. We look to other people to make us matter. And that's why we all live by this formula intuitively, okay? My performance plus your approval equals my self-worth. It's my resume and the sum of all my achievements plus your, hey, that's awesome, gives me my self-worth. That's the default formula that we all live by. And although codependency, this is the formula for codependency, although that feels so right, the Bible says in Proverbs that fear of man, codependency will prove to be a snare, right? A snare is something that looks so seductive, it looks so tempting, and then we partake of it you know, like this, I don't know what this thing, it's like a cross between like a beaver and a wolf. I don't know, something made it there. That thing needed to die anyway. Um, but what happened is uh, the snare captures you and it kills you. 
And so we all think codependency is the way to go, but it ends up destroying us. The Bible warns codependency will kill you. Now, I know, we always think, does the Bible like exaggerate and embellish? It never does. The Bible does not exaggerate. And our text this morning proves Proverbs 29. Because our text this morning vividly illustrates how codependency, how the fear of man, has a snowball effect. That if it's not checked, it will destroy your entire life. It will jack up your entire existence. We see that portrayed clearly in the life of King Herod. Okay? Now, just to give you a little background here, uh, there's a lot of King Herods in the Bible. If you read through the Gospels, uh, there's like three or four dudes that are named King Herod. This is King Herod Antipas, okay? And apparently, he was named after that really weird salad at an Italian restaurant that you order before your pizza comes out, you know? You know, strange, it has no lettuce, it has all toppings, okay? Um, That was a Herod Antipas. He was named after that salad. He was the ruler over Galilee, okay? And Herod Antipas came from a long line of Jews. Granddaddy was a Jewish king. His daddy was a Jewish king. He had Jewish heritage, grew up in a Jewish home, watched Jewish Veggie Tales and Jewish Waltons and went to Jewish Sunday school. He did it all. And so from a young age, this guy knew the law. He knew the Old Testament law, the first half of your Bible, he knew it. In fact, in the Old Testament, it commands a king that before he could become the king, he actually had to write a full copy of of the Old Testament, and then he had to read it all the days of his life. So King Herod, any pasto, he's a Bible beaver, dude. Bible beaver. This guy knows right from wrong. He knows morality. He knows exactly how life is supposed to be lived and what he's supposed to do. But here's the deal. Because Herod was a codependent person, his codependency snowballed on him and rolled up on him until it actually killed him and destroyed him. Destroyed his entire life. And the first thing that we see in this text is that Herod's codependency caused him to compromise his morals. That's the first thing. Herod's codependency caused him to compromise his morals. And listen, just to give you a little background here, Herod was married originally to a woman named Phasaelus, okay? She was the daughter of the king of Arabia. That was his original wife. Um, and, And Herod was married to her for a time. But when he was away, you know, one summer on business in Rome, he met his brother Philip's wife for the first time. And she caught his eye. He became infatuated with her. And he thought to himself, you know what? If I could just go back to little old Galilee where I'm the king, and I took this woman back, and she's on my arm, dude, imagine how people would view me. If I come back with her on my arm, this trophy wife, just imagine how people will look at me, how much more prestigious I'll be as a king in little old Galilee. This is Rome. This is amazing. I've got to take some of this power back to Galilee. So he fell head over heels for this woman. He wanted to bring her home, and so he did. He stole his brother's wife away from him, took her back to Galilee, and then when he got back, he actually divorced his first wife. Big surprise there. Hello. Welcome home. And this was a huge scandal. A huge public scandal. In fact, this got him sideways with John the Baptist. Because in verse 18, if you look there, John the Baptist is constantly saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the Greek stresses this idea that, you know, John the Baptist is constantly over and over and over again preaching against Herod and saying, listen, dude, you can't be doing that. You know better than this. You're our Jewish king. You're our example of morality. You cannot break the law. It's very clear. 
And so John the Baptist is doing this like huge series on adultery in his church, and the punchline of every sermon is Herod the king and his wife, Herodias. And of course, Herodias doesn't appreciate this, so she wants to kill John the Baptist. And what happens is Herod knew John was telling the truth. And so this puts Herod in quite a predicament. His wife hates John the Baptist. He knows what he's saying is right. So Herod's codependency then caused him to vacillate and become double-minded. It's snowballing hill, right downhill. In fact, verses 19 and 20, look there. This sums up perfectly the situation that Herod finds himself in. Look at there. It says, and Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't. Here it is, verse 20. Because for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And this is amazing to me. This is the most amazing verse in this passage. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, the reason Herod locked up John the Baptist isn't because he hated John the Baptist. It wasn't because, you know, he wanted to kill him. The reason Herod locked up John the Baptist is because he was trying to keep John safe from his wife, Herodias. John the Baptist was like this pawn in this elaborate game of chess between this man and his wife. And Herod is under all this kinds of stress. He doesn't want to offend anyone. He's trying to please everyone. And so what he does is he comes up with this really clever plan. And he says, you know what? I'll lock John up in prison. That way it appears to Herodias like I'm punishing him. But then it appears to John like I'm preserving him from Herodias. He's trying to play both sides of the field at the same time. He's afraid of taking a stand. Because listen, he's afraid of losing the love and acceptance of Herodias, this looker. He's afraid of losing that, but he's also afraid to hurt John the Baptist because he knows in his conscience this guy preaches the truth. And so he locks up John in prison, and this is a vacillating, double-minded man. I mean, when he's in the arms of Herodias, he's cussing out John the Baptist. I can't believe that, dude. But when he's in the dungeon listening to John the Baptist's sermons, man, every time there's an altar call, he goes forward. Seriously, he's got, you know, tears and boogers and snot. He's like, I'll leave her, I'll leave her. And nothing ever changes. He's greatly perplexed, and yet he hears him gladly. Because he knows in his conscience that what's happening here is wrong. And so Herod is a codependent. He compromises his morals, becomes a double-minded man. And this led him to have poor boundaries. We see that's the third thing. This led Herod to have poor boundaries in his life. His codependency is rolling up on him. Because what happened was this. On Herod's birthday, he throws a big party. And he invites all his military nobles and all his political cronies. And the teenage daughter of Herodias, teenage girl, she gets up, she dances, this very seductive dance. And because you've got a lot of old perverts in the room who are six beers deep, what happens, everyone loves it. They start applauding, and they're like, this is awesome. And you know what Herod does? He wants to show how kind and generous he is. And so he makes maybe the stupidest oath in the entire Bible. This is what he says. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says to her, this teenage girl, ask me, the king, for whatever you want up to half my kingdom. You can ask up to that amount because if you go 51%, then I'm no longer the king. Okay, you're in control. So you can ask me for whatever you want up to half. Now that is, that's a classic codependent phrase, isn't it? 
Think about that for a second. Ask me whatever you want. You can do it. You know, here's my cell phone. Call me anytime you want. There's no parameters. You have complete freedom in my life to tell me how, how to think, how I should feel, how I should act. He had absolutely no boundaries at all in his life. There was nothing sacred at all. This is a classic codependent phrase. Ask me for whatever you want me to do. Mold me into your image, and I'll be moldable, baby. Classic codependent phrase. And listen, this came back to bite him huge. Because Herodias, she goes and talks to her mom, and she comes back, and she asks in verses 24 and 25, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod's codependency has come back to bite him in a major way, and since he's so controlled by what other people think of him, Herod's codependency next caused him to say yes when he really wanted to say no. All these are classic symptoms of codependency. He says yes when inside he really wants to say no. Look at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. You know what's interesting? This word, exceedingly sorry, it's only used one other time in the entire Gospel of Mark. Only one. In fact, it's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's thinking ahead to his crucifixion. And it says, the text says, Father, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. In other words... I don't want to go through with this because I'm terrified because I'm a human being, Jesus said in the garden. He's being ripped apart. Exact same word that's used here. The king was exceedingly sorry. He was ripped apart. He wanted to say no. But, look at verse 26, but because of his oaths and his guests around him, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod's a dude, he's afraid to offend anyone. He just is. And so when the daughter of Herodias says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, he doesn't want to say yes, he wants to say no, but he thinks to himself, what will happen if I say no? What will all my political cronies think about me if I take a stand for God and I go in the face of what everyone else is telling me is right? What will happen to my reputation on the street if I refuse to kill this holy and righteous man? All these thoughts went through his head, but codependency causes us to say yes when we really want to say no, and we agree to all sorts of things. And what happens is, just like King Herod, it eventually led him to butcher his conscience caused Herod to butcher his conscience. Because what happened is this. It says immediately, without any further thought, Herod sent for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And they came out. They killed John the Baptist. Herod killed the most holy and righteous man up until that time, Jesus said, because of the fear of man. Codependency pushed him all the way over the edge into an adulterer and a murderer of God's holy prophet, because he feared the praise of men more than he feared the praise of God. And what happened is this. Now every time that Herod hears like a twig break, he thinks it's John the Baptist coming back for him. He thinks to himself, look at verse 16. He thinks to himself, John the Baptist is back from the dead for revenge. 
I mean, he hears about all these miracles that Jesus is doing. He thinks to himself, this is John the Baptist. He's coming back. These are the miraculous powers in, in Jesus. This is John reincarnate here. The fear of man has snowballed in Herod's life, and it's made him basically an adulterer and mentally unstable. He's freaking out. Now, the question this morning is this. How in the world could this happen? You got a nice Jewish boy raised in a Jewish home, taught the Bible from a young age. How in the world could he grow up to be like, like a monster? That's what it looks like. It looks like a monster here. Like, who, who does this kind of stuff? Steals their own brother's wife, kills God's prophet. How does this happen? The answer is codependency. Codependency. Herod's heart functioned according to the same formula that all of our hearts function. My performance plus your approval equals my self-worth. This is how his heart functioned at a fundamental level. And listen, this text hits all of us where we live because all of us are just like King Herod. All of us are just like King Herod. I mean, when I read this text, I cannot help but see myself in it because we are so easily swayed by the opinions of other people, so easily. And and this text explains how people like us who are in church every Sunday, we hear the Bible every Sunday, we know right from wrong, it explains how people like us still make foolish and stupid decisions in life, despite all of our knowledge. I mean, we have all kinds of verses in our head, and yet we break them anyway, because the fear of man makes us think we have no other choice. Let me give you an example from my own life, okay? In my previous church, uh, there's a very precious older couple. They're named the Byingtons, okay? By and Harriet Byington. By is a, he's a soldier, he's a veteran of the military, uh, he's a man's man. He's retired. He's just a great guy. Uh, about four years ago, Bai asked my wife and I if we wanted their old freezer from the garage. I went over and picked it up. We needed it so we could put some frozen goodies in the, in the freezer. So we get this freezer from the Byingtons. I, I bring it home. I had it like a few months, okay? Well, right after we brought it home, my wife's parents got a new fridge, and so they said, do you want our old fridge? So we're like, okay, freezer versus fridge, top and bottom. We'll go with the fridge, right? So I go pick the fridge up, bring it home, put it in my garage, and now I've got two ice chests in my garage eating up electricity and space. And since I'm always looking for more room in my garage like a man always does, what I did was I gave the freezer away to someone on Craigslist. Now, that's all fine, but like, it was like two days after I gave it away. I see by at church. And he asked me, he goes, hey man, how's our old freezer working out for you? Now, I didn't have it very long, and so I had a decision to make. I could either, you know where I'm going here. <laughs> I, could either, I could either tell him the truth and risk offending him, or I could, I could lie to him. Now, I did what many of you would have done. I lied to him. <laughs> I lied to him. And I said, oh, it's running great, man. Thank you, you know. And listen, while I was telling that lie, my sinful heart tried to rationalize it because I reckoned to myself in my mind, you know what, no matter where it is right now, it is running great because it's a Kenmore brand, okay? And Kenmore's last forever, you know? Kenmore, Whirlpool, you're good, man. Now listen, we, we laugh, but have you ever done that before? You ever told a lie or you gossip about someone? You've told like some juicy gossip and the whole time you're like, you're trying to like reason and rationalize a proper angle so you can like try to convince your conscience that what you're doing is okay, but you know it's wrong the whole time, but you're looking for an angle. It's like you're telling a lie, but your inner defense attorney is like trying to plead your case to your conscience. 
Like, I object, Your Honor, you know, technically, you know, Jeff, you know, isn't lying because the fridge is running somewhere, just not his garage, you know? We laugh, that's exactly where we live a lot of times. We try to play both sides of the field like King Herod. And we try to convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me go. I mean, I walked away, I was like, I need to go back. I waited a day. Because, listen, there's a part of us that hates to go back. I hate to go back. I'm a pastor. I was a pastor there. This is a deacon, a godly deacon. I've got to go back to a deacon and tell him I lied to his face? Now, I know some people are like, man, what kind of church am I in this morning? Or I came and the pastor confessed the lying. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe that disqualifies me in your eyes, or maybe that actually qualifies me. Hebrews 5 says that the reason we can minister is because we are fallen men who are able to empathize with the sins of others. It's not actually your strength that qualifies you, it's actually your weakness. But I know not everyone can receive that right now. The Holy Spirit won't let me go. I had to go back. I went back and I confessed, listen, I lied because I feared you more than I feared God and I didn't want to hurt your feelings and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm a pastor. I've got two master's degrees in theology. I can probably tell you the Greek and Hebrew words for lying and yet I lied. I'm just like King Herod. I lied right to the dude's face. Now, now, now why do I tell all that? Because here's the reason. It's not just for entertainment. It's for an illustration because I want to put myself under the microscope this morning, Okay? I want to put my lie under the microscope because why in that moment did I lie? Now someone says because you're a sinner and you always sin until you die. And, and listen, let's close in prayer. That's what they listen, that is true. I am a sinner who sins still. Shepherd or sheep too. But in that exact moment, why did I lie? Why did I feel like I had to lie? Well, the Bible would say because of codependency. Because codependency is an excessive emotional, physical, and psychological reliance upon another person that's not named God. And I couldn't bear the thought of this older couple thinking less of me. How dare I tell them that the new freezer they gave me, that was really like 30 years old, that I gave it away already on Craigslist to someone. I couldn't bear losing even an iota of esteem in their eyes and appear vacillating like a person that doesn't know what they want. What's worse than that in church? That person's unstable. That wrecks you. I don't want that. I don't want people thinking I say yes when I really mean no or no when I really mean yes. I wanted to save face. I desired the approval of buying Harriet Byington more than I did the approval of God. I was a very weak and insecure man, and that's why I lied. I wanted to hear they're very good instead of delighting in God's very good of me. At that exact moment, I didn't really believe the gospel. And so despite all of my knowledge, I still blatantly lied. And the reason I lied is because deep down inside, at a fundamental heart level, I felt like it was my only choice. The reason why people like King Herod and like us, who have all kinds of Bible knowledge, who know right from wrong, still turn their life into a dumpster fire is because they feel like it's their only choice. And although King Herod knew it was wrong to kill John the Baptist. The only thing worse than, being, than killing John the Baptist was being unpopular. The only thing worse than killing the holy prophet of God was being unpopular in the eyes of his people. And so he felt like killing John the Baptist was his only choice. This text serves, it's very stunning. I know it's sobering this morning. It shows us how destructive fear of man can be. Now, here's the question, right? Here's how you came this morning. How do we break out of the cycle? How do I stop the snowball effect, the domino effect, 
of fear of man that will eventually, if left unchecked, destroy your entire life. How do I put a pause button on that? Here's the answer. The Bible says repent. If you're new to church, the word repent does not do better, try harder. It doesn't mean that at all. Repent is a compound word in Greek, metanoieo, or literally it's from metanous, which means to change your mind. Repentance is changing the way you think because, again, our default mode, our default formula, next slide here, is is my performance plus people's approval equals my self-worth. We have to repent of that formula. We have to change our thinking about the way that we earn our self-justification, our worth. And we have to trust in the gospel, which is Christ's performance plus God's approval equals my self-worth. We have to change literally the way that we think about where our self-worth comes from. That's what it means to repent. Repent doesn't mean stop it, do better. Repentance is I need to change the way that I think about life and where my acceptance comes from. I need to stop looking at you as my Savior and start realizing Jesus is my Savior. He gives me everything I need. And listen, I'm perfect now in his eyes, so I can let the chips fall where they may and tell you exactly what's on my heart, but I'm not going to be rude because that's not loving either. That's what it means to delight in the gospel and repent. And we must realize, friends, this is the part about church that's very hard to understand because the law resonates. Everything up to now has resonated. This is the part that becomes sort of like off-road gravel. This is counterintuitive because you have to understand your acceptance and significance in life has already been earned for you on the cross. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, it is finished. Ain't nothing more to prove. Here's my resume for you in your place. And if you believe anything else, if you believe in the first formula that my performance plus your approval equals my self-worth, that is something in theological terms called salvation by works. Or it's called, we call it around here, legalism. Legalism is the belief that my self-worth is determined by what I can bring to the table, what I can perform, what I can secure on my own. And listen, we are hardwired for legalism. And that's why we're hardwired to be codependent. Because I have to earn your approval of me by what I do, by what I can bring to the table. And we must repent, which means we literally must change our thinking about where our self-worth comes from. Because through the gospel, we have a perfect righteousness. We have our glory restored through Christ. And the verdict that you so desperately want to secure by all your people-pleasing, by all your late-night phone calls, by all your blog posts, by all your Facebook ads, that approval you're longing for was already given to you freely 2,000 years ago on the cross. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, God says over you, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well-pleased. And you can never lose that verdict because it's not based upon your performance at all. It's based upon Christ's performance in your place. And so no matter if you have a two-minute quiet time or a two-hour quiet time or a two-day quiet time, God is well-pleased with you because it's Christ's performance in your place. And the more you soak in that divine reality, the less you will feel yourself needing the praise of people. The more you'll be freed up. And the only reason we still struggle with codependency at all, the only reason as Christians we struggle with the fear of man is because deep down inside, we don't think the cross was enough. That's the bottom line. We look at the cross and we're like, God, that's cute and all, but there's a few more things I must do to prove that I belong, that I belong in this church, that I belong at this table at Starbucks. There's a few more things that I think I have to do. Again, that's legalistic thinking. 
And that's why Oswald Chambers said this, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. God's left something for me to do. Jesus paid it all, but at least I left the tip, whatever it is. At least I cleaned the table off, right, after I was done eating. Whatever it is, I added something to the finished work of Christ. It's legalism. Jesus paid it all. And the root of all of our sin is the suspicion that God didn't do enough on the cross to secure our self-worth. And so listen, we have to constantly push the gospel between our ears into our hearts because whatever you're not getting vertically in your relationship with God, you will go shopping for horizontally in relationships with other people. You'll go window shopping, baby, because you are, you're insecure. You don't feel like you matter. You don't have self-worth. And so when I walk out in society, I'm vulnerable. Just like King Herod, I'm vulnerable for adultery or whatever it is because I'm a codependent person looking for other people to make me matter because I don't really believe deep down inside that Jesus makes me matter. Now, I know this is hard. This is so hard to wrap our minds around. But in Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God loved you before the world was even created. It says that God, actually in Ephesians 1, it says God predestined us in love, which means God chose us before the foundation of the world to be Christians, to be believers, to be his children. He loved us before any of this was even here. And I I know some people, they think of like God's predestination or God's election of his children. They think of it like, you know, this chance endeavor, like, you know, like the Florida lottery. There's a bunch of ping pong balls bouncing around inside of a huge vacuum, you know, with people's names on them. And that Michael the archangel pulls the lever and a ping pong ball comes up and what do we got here? It's Jeff Ecker, you know? That's not how it happened. God particularly chose you and loved you before the foundation of the world. And listen, before anything was created, before you were created, God was already rocking around with a picture of you in his wallet. And he was showing the angels. He's like, you know, this is Jeff. He's one of my kids. He's not been born for 5,000 years, but there he is. He, I love him already. That's what he said. That's how it happened. You guys like that one over there? <laughs> That's how it went down. He already had our picture in his wall. He already bestowed his love upon us. I know this is mind-bending because we tend to view God, our Father, as this divine landlord in heaven that just can't wait to evict us because we play our music too loud. We think of him that way. One more sin and I'm out. Listen, that's trifling with the cross. Because, yeah, we're jacked up. Yeah, we're people pleasers. But listen, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ through faith in Jesus. And the Bible says that God loves us with an everlasting love, and not only does God not loathe us, God actually can't stop thinking about us. If you don't get anything else this morning, God cannot stop thinking about you. That's what Psalm 139 says. Check this out. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. That's a, that's a verse right there to build your whole Christian walk on, I think. Because here's the deal. The first time I read that, I thought of like a person, you know, walking down the beach and, you know, collecting grains of sand and scooping them up and thinking, man, how many grains of sand are on all the beaches in all the world? That's the first thought when I read this verse years ago. But, but it doesn't say they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. It just says they outnumber the grains of sand, period. And you know what's interesting? Sand is everywhere. It's not just on the beach. It's actually everywhere. In fact, the building that you are sitting in right now is basically made of sand. They melt, they melt down, I think it's quartz, 
They melt down quartz sand to make glass. They, the, the stucco and the plaster um, and, and all that kind of stuff is made with sand. Paint has sand in it because it flattens it out, I guess. So I read this online. It must be true. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was pressed for sermon time this week, so whatever comes up on Google, man. <laughs> fact. Just kidding. There's a little bit more went to than that. Uh, pesticides, they're used. Sand is used to disperse the pesticides out. So the guy out spraying the grass, sand used there. Uh, roofing shingles are used with sand to, uh, to make them non-sticky, I guess. Bricks, cinder blocks, grout, non-skid floors, plastic, sealants, adhesives, rubber used for seals on windows and door stoppers. That's all made with sand. Basically, in other words, you can melt this entire building down, and it's a big pile of sand. Sand's in all this. And think of all the buildings in all the world. Melt them all down, break them all up, count up all those little granules, and then take all the sand in all the rest of the world that's not been broken down yet, the pyramids, all that kind of stuff, break it all down. And listen, all of those granules of sand actually can't even compare with how many thoughts God has towards you. Hey, I, we got to get some clapping in here or something, man. That's about all I got, man. I know we're not charismatic in here, but we can get a little spirit going here. I mean, I, let's, y'all are like harnessed up in here, man. Next, next slide. And listen, here's the cool thing. Scientists have sort of like estimated how many grains of sand there are in the entire world. It's 75 to the 18th power, just a rough estimate. 18 zeros. And the Bible says God has more thoughts of you than that, whatever that number even is, man. It's 75 to the 18th power. And so think of it. You don't have to spend your, how foolish is it for you to spend your life trying to suck the approval out of other people like a tick? Just to get people to think about you just a little bit. You spend your life trying to get people to think about you just a little bit where God's thoughts of you outnumber that. That. 